So this uh, evening, I would like uh, to look at two more of the Eightfold Path. First, appropriate mindfulness, and then appropriate thought intention. It kind of goes, it's a word, it can be translated in two ways. And so the first one, appropriate mindfulness. I mean, you've been very mindful, haven't you? You know, trying to be aware of your breath and everything. And in a way to see that the mindfulness, as Stephen first said, they are, I think it's very important to see that the mindfulness is not just mindfulness of the breath or just mindfulness of the sound. But by becoming mindful of the breath, mindful of the sound, mindful of the body, it's kind of like, in a way, training our muscles of mindfulness so that we then can do it to everything. Because as Stephen mentioned in his instruction, in terms of the four foundation of mindfulness, you have the body, you have the feeling, you have the mind state, greed, hatred, delusion, confusion, or clarity. You have the mind object, which is basically the five hindrances, the skandhas, the three fires, the seven factors, the four <laughs> true, I mean, basically everything. So in a way, at that level, there is nothing we cannot be mindful of. But then the question is, how are we mindful? So that it's kind of like a certain type of mindfulness we are developing. What we might call meditative mindfulness, what we might call, I rather use the term, creative awareness. So that first I think it's important to see that with this mindfulness, there is this caring aspect. Kind of, it's not cold, but it's a mindfulness which is, you know, interested in what goes on. There is like a little probing quality to it, exploring quality to it. And also there is this caring, this kind of looking at things in a caring way and in a careful way. And I would say creative because it's not just observing something. It's kind of by observing something, then in a way you could say actively doing something. Uh, recently I have a, like a little mindfulness problem, you could say. So we have two boards in the dining room. We have the big one and we have the small one. And I go from the small one to the big one and vice versa. Because from one I take something, then I have to write on the little ledge of the big board, then I have to go back to put on the other one. And repeatedly, I have banged my toe <laughs> on the foot of the big one, of the big board. So I do it once and I think, you know, be mindful. I do it another time. Be mindful. And then yesterday morning, I did it again twice. So it is get, getting very painful. I was starting to limp. Then I thought, but I am mindful. 
But it's not enough. Because the mindfulness was kind of, in a way, assuming that my body would know not to bang on the thing. And I realized, why do I keep banging on this? I must be, at that moment, especially challenged. <laughs> I must, somebody in my body mind and everything must think, the distance is not like it is. So then, I had to be even more mindful. But then, it was more being careful mindful. So then now what I do is that I really go round. <laughs> then I go round again and again. So in a way, I could not assume. I think often we assume mindfulness will take care of it. Like if it happens on its own, we think, you know, if I am just mindful, it's enough. But obviously it was not enough. I really needed what I would call a caring, careful mindfulness. I really did not want to bang my toes so much that then I could really could not walk. So then I had to be, have a strategy. I needed to do something and not assume it will happen on its own. So that's why I think there is in the mindfulness a probing, exploratory, creative quality about it. So it's not just observing something, but in a way it's observing something so that we can more creatively engage with what's going on. So that from the mindfulness something comes up, that caring, careful, and I would say balanced <coughs> mindfulness. And what was interesting for me that for 10 years, I was doing Zen meditation in Korea. And at no point was the word mindfulness used. Nowadays it's used in a certain way, but then it really was not used. Because then you only talk and we'll present it later in the week. It's all about questioning. And what was funny is that people would come from practicing mindfulness, and then I would host them as a foreign guest uh, host, and then they would talk to me about awareness, and then I would talk to them about questioning. And it's like there was two dictionaries <laughs> talking to each other, and we did not go very far. <laughs> and then I uh, came back, I, I left, I stopped being a nun, I came back to Europe. And then all my friends were doing uh, Vipassana meditation, awareness meditation. And then I tried to do this, you know, and I said, oh, this is not a bad idea, this awareness stuff. <laughs> but then, as I heard more teaching, especially about Samatha and Vipassana, like I mentioned before, and as I read more about it, I actually realized I had been doing it all this time. That's one of the first effects of me cultivating the questioning was actually to become aware. And one of the things that was happening more and more is that I would see myself be mindfully compassionate. That out of the mindfulness, there would come this compassion. 
So that's why I think one has to be careful of thinking, if I just do this, this is mindfulness meditation, and that's not mindfulness meditation. Personally, I would say any meditation where you develop samatha and vipassana, you are using mindfulness to do it anyway. And as you do it, you develop more mindfulness. So it's kind of the, the two kind of work together. There is that cultivation of it, and through the cultivation of it, there is actually more of the appearance of it. And I would say there is more, not just being more mindful, but I would say more being creatively aware. And so that's why, because what I saw is that when we practice the questioning, actually we're doing the same thing. We're focusing on the question, and at the same time we're asking the question again and again. So we do the samatha and the vipassana together in a different way. But it has the same effect that one develop mindfulness, creative awareness, which is caring, careful, and balanced. And I would say the two aspects which are very interesting of that creative awareness is acceptance and transformation. That actually, in a way, before I did anything about my toe banging, I had to accept I keep banging my toe. I had to be really aware, I keep, it's not an accident. Once is okay, but four times, this is not an accident. So something was going on. First, I have to accept what is going on. I have to accept that although I'm supposed to be hyper-mindful, I keep banging my foot. So something is going on. And so in a way, to me, the mindfulness is to say, yeah, this is happening. Yes, I am doing this. So in a way, in that acceptance, there is a knowing of it, the knowing of how it happens. And back to that exploratory, exploratory quality of knowing but what is going on. To me, that's one part of the mindfulness, is to help us to ask, not just to observe what's going on, but to ask, what is going on? What is happening? What are the conditions that are going on? And sometimes the acceptance can actually be a transformation in itself. And sometimes the acceptance is not enough. And then we might have to do either inner transformation or outer transformation. But I think what is also important to see is that the mindfulness, the appropriate mindfulness, is not just being aware of our stuff, but it's really to be aware of our condition. You could say our inner condition, our, the condition of our being meeting outer condition. We do not exist independently of what we exist in. So that the mindfulness is not just to see our staff. But of course, as we practice, we become more aware of what's going on in ourselves. But equally, what is going on outside of ourselves? And how, in a way, we impact on the conditions and how the outer conditions impact 
on us. I think to me that's one of the, the things about the mindfulness, is really seeing that, engaging with it in an experiential way. So the acceptance is in a way not going into what I would call abstract story about what is going on, but really seeing, okay, what is really happening? How can I be with this? Do I, do I have just to accept it? Because there is nothing I can do about it? Or is it that I can do something about it? And to me, the acceptance again, as is caring, careful, and balanced quality. So the mindfulness, in a way, I would say, is not to be careful not to use it to judge ourselves. But the mindfulness is to help us to open to what's going on. That it be negative or that it be positive. So to see that, again, often there seems to be this tendency, I must focus on the hindrances, I must focus on the three fires. But I think it is as important to focus on our good quality. How does it feel when we're compassionate? How does it feel when we are happy, when we are joyful, when we are wise? And in a way, to know it fully. So that in a way, it balances a little what can happen at other times where it's more difficult. But also, what is interesting, we, when we're mindful of it, we become more trusting of it. And if we become more trusting of it, we actually can manifest it more. So in a way, the, the mindfulness is also that sustaining of it. And the transformation is also, again, using that exploratory quality, trying to understand what is going on. Can I do anything? And I think one has to be careful. Sometimes we think, what is the biggest thing I can do to change anything? And personally, I would say, what is the least you can do? What is the smallest, the smallest thing I can do right now? Not the biggest thing I can achieve, but right now. What is the smallest thing that can make a difference? Like me realizing I needed to avoid the feet of the board in order not to bang in it. I could not just assume magically I would not do it. I needed to, in a way, avoid it. So appropriate mindfulness. And that's what we're trying to cultivate. And what is important to see is that it is really not something magical or mystical. It's one of the eightfold paths. And anybody can do it. That's what is wonderful about mindfulness. Appropriate mindfulness. Anybody can do it. Any, it's not something like a kind of a magic thing. It's just something we can, we just need to be a little more present. Because that's one of the things about appropriate mindfulness, is that it helps with presence of mind. Presence of mind meaning in the whole being we are more here. But of course, not that because the present is special, but more, 
to help us to be more in the experience, the multiple experience which is happening. So in a way, the appropriate mindfulness is an exploration of the condition that happened, myself within it. And that's why it's a, in a way a lifelong journey to explore all the different conditions, ourselves and others. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about was the appropriate thought. Appropriate thought, appropriate intention. It's called samasankapa. And that's the definition. It is a thought of renunciation, of non-ill will, of harmlessness. So it is a thought of renunciation, of non-ill will, of harmlessness. So again, it's not some kind of, like, kind of amazing, philosophical, abstract thought or some kind of amazing, heroic intention. It is just looking. The thought I'm having in this moment, has it got some characteristics, some aspect of renunciation, non-ill will, of harmlessness? And why the translation is either thought and intention is because thought as in purpose. Because in a way we have a thought which a lot of the time inspire or move us to do something. So in a way the Buddha is saying to cultivate something which will in a way moves us toward renunciation, toward non-ill will, toward harmlessness. And so in that way to look. Not that we kind of like suddenly become like really uptight and constantly looking in our mind, you know, I must not have a thought like this, I must have a thought like that. But it's more, I would say, as a suggestion of exploration. What is in our mind? What impels us? What colors? Our, our speech, our action, which is what I will talk about next time. And that's why it's so important to be aware of our thoughts. And that's why, in a way, I know all of you sitting in meditation here, you possibly could be a little tired because of all the thoughts in the last three days that have been going around your mind, although the idea is to be aware of the breath or other sound. And you might think, you know, I have all these thoughts. But you see, to anchor in the breath or in the sound or in the body helps us to be able to look at the thought in a less sticky way and then we can be more aware of what are my thoughts about. What do I think? How do I think it? You know, it's nearly like being able to see the language of the thoughts. And tomorrow I'll talk more about this in the instructions. And so in a way to see that often the thought, the movement in the thought will impel us. And that's why the Buddha says harmlessness. So can we have harmless thought, harmless intention, kind and compassionate thought? 
how does it feel when we have a harmless thought, a kind thought toward ourselves or others? How does it feel when we have a harmful thought, something which is not so friendly to ourselves, to others? I mean, the feel is so different. One is kind of like, kind of you feel spacious and you feel soft in a way. And those are one is kind of like, there is this, there is like this, uh, this stuff. There is this kind of thing. There is this, there is something a little dark within it. And so in a way to look, what is the inner language? What is the inner story? Are the story we tell ourselves, kind or not, to ourselves or to others? And to me, this is one of the important aspects of, uh, of the meditation process. That it's really not about stopping the mind, but again, with the caring, careful, balanced mindfulness, being aware, what am I telling myself? And one of the things which is interesting to look at there, it's about generalization, what I would call totalizing that we have a tendency to make very quick generalization. I'm always like this, they're always like that. I mean, one easy one is, you know, like, all French people are like this, or all Australians are like that, you know. I mean, I remember, before I came to Australia, I must say, I was not keen to come to Australia, <laughs> because of two things that happened. Once I was going somewhere, in a plane, and there was a huge crowd of uh, Australian rubbing men. <laughs> and this was one of the worst flights of my life. I mean, it was terrible. It was really awful. You know, I thought, ooh, Australians. <laughs> and then there was this uh, friend of mine who had been to Australia, and he said, you know, don't go to Australia. You know, I mean, they really... You have, they're always, you know, fighting with you, and, you know, you have lots of these people fighting each other and beating each other up. And I thought, oh, you know, you know, these Australians. <laughs> and then we were invited. I thought, why not? Let's try it out. <laughs> and actually, they were so nice, so friendly. And I did not see anybody beating each other up because I did not go to bars. <laughs> I think my friend went to the places where this thing happened. And I've never been to such a place, so I did not see any of it. And that's why the thing is that we can so easily generalize from one incident about somebody. Because somebody does or says something, then they're always like this. Or because I do or say something, I'm always like this. And the thing is that if we do that, to me this is one of the things which is actually very harmful to ourselves and others. To, because we fix, we fix ourselves, we fix others, and then there is no, uh, there is no possibility of transformation, and then you can carry this for a long time. So you know, we're being careful of that, because that's kind of a subtle, but how we generalize, how we totalize, <coughs> and instead, again, with the appropriate mindfulness, meeting the person in the moment, Meeting yourself in the moment, in this moment, what is going on? This is actually one of the gifts of mindfulness. 
What is going on right now? Not 10 years ago, five years ago, but what is going on right now? How do I feel? How is a person? In that way, in a way, dissolving that generalization. I mean, there is another thing we do in terms of that generalization. And it's what I call this kind of like uh, sticking something to stop something else and generalizing about it. And when, when I used to live in England, every spring, the same thing would happen. We had a big garden, and then the community members, the British one, would get very excited. And they would get excited about rhubarb pie. <laughs> and every year I thought, here they go again. You know? But I thought, I'm better now, but I thought then, that rhubarb was one of the worst things you could ever eat, you know? There was something wrong with rhubarb. And if English people ate rhubarb, then there was something wrong with them. So in a way, we do that. The same with, you know, the French people, they eat snails, so there must be something slimy about them, you know? And, kind of, and how we stick things. That's what is interesting with this kind of generalization, is that it goes then into quality. We kind of stick. And then we attribute. And when we attribute, something is how, how it covers. Like we only see that aspect instead of seeing the whole person. So in a way, to, to, it's also looking at categorical. That's an interesting thing to look about ourselves. This when we start to have a language and that's what is interesting in the meditation, to try to play with it. To move when a categorical language to a softened, open language. Instead of, it must be that way. They must do this. Maybe they might, they could, I could. You know, once I was in the garden, gardening, and it was very hot. And I thought, would not it be nice if Stephen brought me a glass of water? <laughs> if Stephen loved me, <laughs> he would bring me a glass of water. And then Stephen appeared without a glass of water. <laughs> and then I saw what had happened. You know, like this kind of, we start with some open-ended stuff and we end with some kind of ca very categorical statement. And then I told him, and we laughed, and now he always brings me a glass of water, even <laughs> if I don't need it. So, but it's to see how we go from something which is a little open-ended, and then we have this tendency toward this kind of, it must be like this. And in a way, personally, this is my mantra nowadays. Let's see what happens. So I'm not going to fix anything, but let's see what happens. And in a way, prepare myself by being mindful, but in that caring, careful, balanced way. Then you have the known ill will. And this, in a way, wishing well, having this peaceful state of mind, instead of being vengeful or aggressive or resentful. And I would say, in a way, Buddhist and meditator have to be careful with resentment. Because they told so much that anger is a bad thing. 
if you're a Buddhist or if you're on the spiritual path, you must not be angry. So you're not angry. Something happened? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> happened again? I can understand. They are suffering. I must be compassionate. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Third time it happened and then you explode, you know? Or you kind of find a way to... So in a way, personally, I would not say that anger or resentment, I feel they're the same. One is more outward, the other one is more inward. But in a way, to see what feeds, you see what feeds a resentment. And I would say one of the things that feeds this is negative rumination. And I don't know if you have experienced it as you're sitting, in meditation here, but that's one of the things people sometimes do. They sit in meditation and they're fine, right now they're fine. But then they remember something somebody did, something negative, hurtful. And so they think, oh, they did this, how could they, this was terrible, this was awful, this was so painful, they always do this, da 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 da. And then you go from the past, in the present you feel bad, but then you go into the future. And then you plot revenge. Very compassionate activity on the meditation cushion. <laughs> and you plot revenge, and you plot the most cutting thing you can say to the person, you know? So, which might not be appropriate thinking, <laughs> as a Buddha would see it. So, in a way, it's to see the pain is in the past. We cannot change it. However much we think about it, we cannot change it. It doesn't mean that we ignore it. We can learn from it. It can be the compost to our mindfulness, but we cannot change it. So in a way, we have to leave the past in the past. Then in the future, generally the person will never say what we predict for them to say, so we can say something, you know, so much more cutting. You know, generally they'll do something else, so we don't know what. So the only thing we can do is cultivate now. Cultivate stability and openness now. Cultivate mindfulness now, so that when we meet again, we can creatively engage with them in that moment. And so to me, that's why in a way, the thought of non-ill will is about. Because often the ill will is just going around and around in circle. Kind of, you know, and it feeds itself. That's what is dangerous with ill will. It's kind of like, uh, kind of, it starts like just a little few, and then you kind of find it like, you know, you want to kill the guy or kill, you know, you feel it kind of feeds upon itself. Do you know where we have to be careful? It doesn't mean that we cannot, you know, have a bad mood or a negative thought. But to be careful of what it feeds within ourselves and what it leads us to say or to do, which often will not be appropriate in a way to that moment. And so in a way, that's why one of the meditation which I'll do on the last morning is loving kindness. And I feel loving kindness is very much about, instead of cultivating this vengeful rumination, is actually trying to cultivate something which is a little lighter which are a little more open to our humanity and trying to understand 
What are the conditions that is leading me to feel that way? How can I be with this? What are the conditions that lead a person to be that way? And how can I deal with it? I mean, once I met this lady, and she was saying, you know, like, in our family, she was the last one who visited the father twice a year because he was so awful. He really was awful. And she was even thinking of stopping to see him one, twice a year because he was so awful. But she still kind of thought, I can't, you know, handle it, kind of just about. But in a way, because he was so aggressive to everything and everybody, then everybody in his life disappeared because nobody could be with that. And he could not find the way not to be there. So I think it's very much for us to see that when somebody is like that, it's very painful. But at the same time, how much can we take that? So we might time to time be able to take it like this lady, but at other time we might not. And that's why the Buddha, when he talks about compassion, he said, in a way, we need to have compassion as much for ourselves as for others. So that sometimes we have more for others, sometimes more for ourselves, sometimes we are in the middle. So this non-ill will, it doesn't mean that, again, this mindfulness doesn't mean anybody, anything goes. No, you have to have that creative awareness. Is this damaging to myself? Is this damaging to others? How can I be in this situation? And the last one is renunciation. And I wanted to look at renunciation in different ways, in terms of restraint, in terms of contentment, but also in terms of letting go. And so re renunciation, I feel part of it is about restraint, is about discipline. In a way, it's kind of saying not anything goes. Like, you know, often we have the feeling, I should be able to do what I want to do. But the thing is that we live within condition. And sometimes we have to have restraint. Like, for example, if you are uh, somebody who is uh, alcoholic and you decide to stop, then you cannot have it. You cannot have it whatsoever. Or if you have, I mean, we can have different problems. And sometimes we know this is not a good idea. I personally, I have a, not such a good stomach. So, I restrain myself with a lot of things. And at the same time, it doesn't bother me. It's not like I want it so much that I am ready to have the suffering that it causes. But possibly because uh, I am mindful of suffering. And I think, wait a minute, why would I do this for? You know? And when I first realized that, that really it was conditional, that, that my stomach could be fine if I avoided certain things, I thought, yeah, why not? I'll go for that. This is easy transformation. I just not have to eat this or not to drink this. So in a way, it's to see, kind of in a way, there is also that in that restraint. Personally, I think in the renunciation, there is a renunciation of the cause of suffering, that I'm not going to do this because it causes suffering to myself or to others. Then you have, in a way, the idea of uh, renunciation, a little like with simp simplicity. Kind of, what, it, what does it mean 
renunciation. Because often we go overboard. Renunciation means I renounce everything. I don't think that's what renunciation means. But what would it mean to simplify? What would it mean to simplify? What would it mean to renounce? What does this? And to me, then, it makes me think about the difference between needs and wants. Because we have basic needs. Even the Buddha was aware of that. He was aware that the monks and the nuns, although they were celibate and everything, they still had four needs. They needed food, they needed shelter, they needed clothes, they needed medicine. So he was aware that they, they could not just live on air and water. They needed all these things. So then he found a way, a reciprocal way, by which the lay people could provide those. And then, in turn, the monks and the nuns would do their best. But this was within a place of simplicity. The monks and the nuns not looking for what is the most I can get, but more what is the least I can live with. And that's what all the uh, rules of the monks and the nuns are about. And this is kind of, in a way, a question for us. When we want something, often I ask myself, do I need it? Or do I want it? And how does it feel if I need something? If I am hungry or if I am thirsty? And when I want something, some fancy drink or just drinking water? You know, it's kind of just, you know, saying that, you know, you cannot explore things. But I think it's to really see what is a need, what is a want, and how does it feel? And I'm not saying it's easy to make the difference, but I think it's interesting to explore it with mindfulness. This kind of, what is it I need? What is it I want? You know, like you eat a, a little piece of uh, chocolate <coughs> because you need a little sweet something. I do. And then you have one. Ooh, that was good. And then you have two. And then generally, should be enough, could be enough. And then do you eat the whole thing or just have a third one? This is a thing. Kind of, you know, what do we do? What is a kind of, in a way, the restraint? What is a need? And then when do we go overboard? And then from just a need, we go into the want, and then we might, you know, get uh, indigestion or something. It's kind of interesting. How do we in a way, exploring that aspect. And the last one is letting go. And I really experience this uh, part of renunciation in terms of what I call letting go. When I was in Korea, and uh, I was in a taxi in the capital of Korea, and you had the taxi driver who was so chuffed that he had a foreign nun. You know, as a long-nosed person, was a nun, shaved everything, and he was so excited. And so he was driving, and then he, again and again he turned, and I thought it was a bit iffy. He said, oh, this is amazing. You are a nun. This is amazing. This is amazing. You know, you're not drinking, you're not smoking, you can't go out, you know, to parties, you can't have children, you can't have sex. This is amazing. What renunciation? And I was sitting there thinking, 
I don't want any of this. You know, I mean, if he, he wants all these things, and he thinks, you know, I should want all these things, but I don't. So I realized that actually renunciation was not about forcing yourself not to do something, but actually renunciation was about not exaggerating that thing. Because often, why do we want something? And why do we want it exceedingly? Because back to the unsatisfactoriness. Because we think that if we get it, then I will really, really be happy. And generally, as we mentioned before, it lasts about 10 minutes or a little more sometimes, but not very long generally. And I think it's the knowledge of impermanence help us with the experience of renunciation. Do I really want this? Do I really want this right now? And so I think what goes, why, why we can let go, and I think that's what the meditation is about, I would say, is by the fact that we don't exaggerate anymore. Because the reason why we exaggerate is because we grasp. And to me, that's why I talk of letting go, de-grasping. And I really see the meditation as, in a way, slowly learning to de-grasp and through the appropriate mindfulness and the appropriate concentration, the de-grasping happening by itself. And so what I would say to you in terms of your meditation for the rest of the retreat, very likely you will still be asleep, time to time, like me at the moment, you also have thought. But in a way, that doesn't mean you are not meditating. And that doesn't mean that something does not happen. And to me, one of the things that happens with the meditation is what I call the effect, the releasing. By just the fact that we try to concentrate and we try to look deeply. Even if we have lots of thought, even if we are sleepy, at the end of it, we feel a little different. Like there is a little releasing, a little degrasping. And this is really what we're working on, what this all eightfold path is about. And so to see that when we grasp, and we, we can grasp at everything. It's like we have this kind of sticky quality. Anything we con come in contact with, we can grasp. That it be a word, that it be a sight, that it be anything, we can grasp. And as soon as we grasp, we generally identify, I, me, mine. Then we solidify around it, we limit ourselves to it, and then we magnify it. And this is, in a way, what I would say is a difficulty with grasping, is the fact that it leads to these two things, proliferation and exaggeration. And to me, this is a signal, is to see when we, we move from what is going on now to proliferation and we go into abstraction, or we go into exaggeration. One way to know you go in exaggeration is when you say, I cannot stand this. Or I have to have this yesterday. It's like, and it's interesting when you are, you are, you are like that, there is like this kind of um, tension. 
Because when we grasp and we exaggerate, we proliferate, we create tension. And then that tension is like, <gasps> it kind of, it makes a thing more than it is. This is a thing. And so in a way, what is the mindfulness about in terms of that? Is that by this, we, by cultivating the mindfulness or concentration, we diminish the proliferation, we diminish the exaggeration that it be positive or negative. And then we see things in perspective. That yes, there is this. But this is only a small part of me. Me, I am more than just one thought. I'm just one more feeling, one sensation, one illness, one problem. I am more than this. I am all these different things. So in a way to see the mindfulness as helping us to be more aware that actually we are more multiple. We are this flow of condition, flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. And often what we do is that we grasp just that one of the condition that forms us. A word we hear, a feeling we have, <coughs> something we saw. And so it doesn't mean that we don't have the feeling, the thought, hear the word, or see the sight. But that if we meet it with creative awareness, then there is less grasping. And then, to me, and that's what the renunciation is about. That if we renounce the proliferation, the exaggeration, then there can be creative engagement. So the mindfulness is not to stare at reality, but the mindfulness is to help us to dissolve the grasping so then we can creatively engage, so that then, as we cultivate, the non-ill will, the harmlessness, the renunciation, then, and we'll move on to that later, there can be appropriate, skillful, wise action. There can be appropriate, skillful, wise speech. And so to see that what we are building is all this, so that when we go back to daily life, when we speak, when we act, it can be with more mindfulness, but the mindfulness, in a way, is a way to say it will be more wise, it will be more compassionate, it will be more stable, it will be more open. So in a way, the renunciation is not that we get rid of something, but we dissolve something so we can actually more creatively engage with our conditions. So that's what I wanted to say today. And then I got this kind of note and so I thought I, had, uh, I could answer it briefly because it's a long note. And the note was about the previous talk when I talk about concentration. And so the note is about the jhanas. Jhana means actually meditative absorption. It's kind of like a state where you are in deep, deep, deep meditation. And then it's kind of like you are, uh, you could nearly say, in a different space. So then the question was, what's the purpose? And how does it relate to the four and the eight? And should one aspire to attaining jhanas? And what is the difference in the technique for awareness of other jhanas? 
So what is the purpose of the jhanas? Generally, the idea behind the meditative absorption is that basically you're going to experience different state of mind. So you're going to experience yourself differently. Uh, how does it relate to the four and the eight? Some people say it relates to them, some people say it does not. So, I mean, you know, there is kind of... The thing about the jhanas to see is that nobody agrees on what is a jhana. So you have eight, and like the last four are really, really like out there. You know, no perception and no this and no that. So let's them. The first four, even those first four, people are not agreeing with them. And if you want to see the definition, if Maria could put the little definition I gave her on the table, then people can read the definition about the jhana, the regular definition. And the thing is that even from the definition, people in Burma, in Sri Lanka, in different places, they don't agree. There is a wonderful book by Richard Chankman about the jhanas. And the first half, he explained them. And the second half, he interviews people about them. And all of them, about eight people, have such different understanding. Because some people who work with Ayakema, and now uh, one of her disciples, they see things easily accessible. When you go to Burma and you have this person who tells you, you know, they are the hardest thing to ever achieve, you know. I have a friend, you know, he practiced for years. And then he goes to Burma and the guy said, well, you never ever got near, near <laughs> the first one. So personally, that's why I think the jhanas, you know, it's not that, uh, when something is so discussed, and I have not experienced them or practiced them, I say, you know, look, read the book. Read that book. <laughs> so, Martine, are they, are they basically uh, absorptive states yeah. created by concentration, introspection? That I'm coming now to that. So, now, how do you get them? That's a question here. What is the difference between awareness and jhana? So, to, to get the jhana, basically you do concentration. And one of the definition of appropriate concentration is doing the jhana. So basically, the jhana are not about vipassana. They're not about looking deeply. They're not about experiential inquiries. They are about concentration. But then, there is two ways that people say you can get the jhanas. One way is by what I call exclusive concentration, where you push everything away and you totally one-pointedness. You just totally one-pointedness and you push, 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 push. And generally, this is very tense making and you go through lots of difficulty until you get to the jhanas. Then there is another method which is totally different. And this is what's called the soft approach. That in order to get the first jhana, you must be in a happy state. And in order to be in a happy state, you do the loving-kindness meditation. And so if you concentrate on the loving-kindness meditation, you develop what they call this soft concentration, and then you can get the first jhana. So again, they are kind of different idea about the two. So, I think that's enough. <laughs> because, it, yes? Um, I've got a question to do with tonight. Um, how do we protect ourselves from others who do not reciprocate when we're practicing 
appropriate intention and thought. Uh, for instance, you know, we're practicing non-ill will, but the other party is not practicing that. And professionally and at work, uh, it can be quite detrimental. I mean, I, I consider myself normally a fairly sharing person, and I like to share, you know, what I've got, and I've, I've, I feel that, um, you know, I, it hasn't worked well for me in work, and so how do we protect ourselves, and how should we think about these things? I would say wisdom, wisdom. You see, with the non-ill will, you also need to have what I call creative, wise mindfulness, you know, and I think that's why it needs to be balanced. It needs to be balanced, so that doesn't mean that you want to go and get the guy, but if the guy is trying to put one over you or to give you difficulty, is in a way, how can I manage it? How, how can I not activate it if I can? If it's activated, how can I stand firm so that I don't increase it, but there is this firmness. That's why the stability is so important. You know, like once I had this experience, uh, you see, you have to see what is it about? What can I do about it? If somebody is kind of, you know, aggressive or is lying or whatever, how can I be with this? How can I creatively engage with it? That, that to me is the key, how we can creatively engage. Yeah, I think the standing firm is the most important word there. Yeah, you see, you have to come with it that you can stand firm and also you might feel a bit agitated here. You have enough composure that you can respond to the situation. Once I had this funny experience in my little village, and now I live above my mother, and my mother likes a, a good deal. And you have lots of con men wanting to give little lady good deals. <laughs> and generally I tried to catch them and stop it, but I did not manage to stop that one. So she signed on the door that this guy for a very good price were going to repaint her house, the outside of the house. And within two days she was upset because it was not the right color. And uh, she could not make them change that. And so she come to me, do something about this. So, you know, you have these two guys, 50 years old, you know. And then here I come, you know, little lady and my mother behind and Stephen behind, you know. <laughs> and I thought, you know, okay, just find stability. So I just go to this stable and open place within myself. And I just go to the situation and I said, you know, my mother, she, she, the color is not right. And they said, well, that's the only color we have. <laughs> <laughs> and then I say, ah, I see. You are not real painters. Because if you were real painters, you could, you know, uh, change the color. I mean, combine colors. I mean, real painter know how to do this. And they said, of course we have real painters. We know how to do this. I said, well, here you are. And they were stuck there to do it once they admitted they were a real painter and they could do it. <laughs> and they did it. But I, I, I did not prepare anything. I just went, I need to be stable and I need to be firm, but in a non-aggressive way. And I think often that works. And then if the person is too aggressive, then you avoid them if you can, or you find a way to. That's what I mean by creative engagement. You have to see what are the conditions, how am I, how are they, and how can I work with that.
is uh, nothing else. And now there is some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.